Okay, let's go ahead and uh, grab a seat and we'll get started. Um, again, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. Happy Hoop Fest weekend. Um, glad to be with the, the half of the church that's uh, not at Hoop Fest, I guess. Um, I don't know what happened to the rest of our church. We like had no seats last Sunday and we have a few open ones this Sunday. Um, but it's great to be gathered with you guys, um, even with a small group. Uh, we have um, a, a really fun morning ahead of us. We're currently in a series on the parables of Jesus from the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 18, verse 21, and we'll get started. Um, and as you're turning there, uh, I'll try to um, kind of provide some context for the verses that we're about to read. Um, as we reach Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples increasingly for their joint lives together in what will eventually come to be known as the church. And it's in this context of kind of figuring out um, sin and restoration and harmony with this new emerging community. Um, I think I'm gonna switch mics maybe, or just ditch the mic. Um, can you guys hear me? Okay, I think that's gonna be, we, we're borrowing a sound system right now as ours is getting fixed, and it's, we don't know how to work it. Um, so, uh, we'll go ahead and um, pick up in um, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And as Jesus is teaching his disciples about community and the new type of community that they are to be, Peter comes to him with a central and pressing question. This is the question that Peter has. Peter then came to Jesus and asked, this is verse 21, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of your debt, all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, 
his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, um, as we are gathered together as an extra small group today um, without a sound system, uh, unpacking a, a, a parable um, that, that sounds really um, confronting and difficult, would you open our eyes um, to your heart for us? And so, Jesus, as your um, disciples or as people who maybe are here just kind of checking out what discipleship to Jesus looks like and what your will is for humanity, uh, we want to open our hearts and minds to what it is that you want to tell us next through uh, these words that were spoken so many thousand years ago. And so, Jesus, we say, come, uh, work amongst your people this morning. We are eager and expectant as to what it is that you want to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. As the disciples attempt to visualize and grasp their joint lives together as the renewed community of God, a central and important question rises in their minds. What are we to do within this community when someone sins against us? And so Peter presents the question to, D to Jesus, and the language of the question is going to sound a bit odd to us, because we're removed from this culture. Uh, but um, culturally, rabbinic teaching in this period of time stated that you were to forgive someone up to three times, which means you sinned against me, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, and then no more forgiveness. And so um, Peter comes and, and he says, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times and and what he's doing with seven is that within the Hebrew culture the number seven signified completion and so by changing the number from three to seven uh, in Peter's mind he's being magnanimous like Jesus will be impressed with me for even suggesting this but then Jesus responds with a shocking answer. He says, not seven, but 77 times. Or another translation says, 70 times seven times. And, and the point isn't that you need to start a longer tally of people's sins against you, or that you should actually count at all. But instead, he, he's playing off this idea of completion with the sevens, and while at the same time saying, you need to forgive your brother or sister an infinite number of times. When is it done? When is it complete? Jesus is saying, it is never complete, which is exactly what we wanted to hear. And then, as their heads are spinning and they're trying to grasp how those words would make sense in any context, Jesus launches into a parable that illustrates the basis for our unending forgiveness of others. This is to be the foundation for that. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
which right off the bat, you, you got to love where this is headed, right? Like, wh what is the love of God like? How can I conceptualize forgiveness? Well, Jesus says, it's kind of like accounting. Uh, okay, I've, I've never thought of it that way. Please enlighten us, Jesus, as to what you're trying to say. And, and what follows uh, is the story of a servant who's brought before a king, and he owes 10,000 bags of gold. I think we have a slide for this. Uh, 10,000 bags of gold, which, or, or really, uh, it's, it's 10,000 talents. And what we have to understand is that one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. A, a denarii is one day of labor. So one talent is 6,000 denarii, 10,000 talents is 60 million days worth of labor. Is that a repayable debt or a unrepayable debt? That is an unrepayable debt. And the servant falls before the king and says, give me time, I'll repay you. No, you won't. But instead, in his mercy and in his majesty, the king forgives the servant. And what follows um, is, is that the servant, that that servant um, goes out and does something really curious. In fact, he does something that is deeply alarming and incongruent with the experience that he's just had. He goes on his way and he finds a servant that owes him money. Next slide. Servant number two owes him 100 silver coins or 100 denarii. That is three months of labor. Is that a repayable debt or an unrepayable debt? That is a completely repayable debt. And he says, give me time, I'll repay it. And instead, he has, and this was common practice, actually for thousands of years up until recent history, if you owed a debt to someone, you could be thrown in debtor's prison and, and your stuff could even be sold off in order to satisfy that debt. And, and that's what he does. He exercises his rights and instead of opting for mercy, he uses his legal rights and condemnation and punishes the other servant and has him thrown into prison. And, and when you're reading that, it, you get that feeling in your gut, right? Like, it, that, that's wrong. That, that's really wrong. We sense that on all sorts of levels, that, that, that something is, is off. And, and God seems to think so too. Because he goes back and he throws the unforgiving servant in prison where torture is dished out in relation to the debt that was owed. And then Jesus says to end it, he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. This is not your classic Sunday school parable. And we're left with this sense of gravity about the, the nature of forgiveness and, and our, the importance of our ability to forgive others. And it is important. But rather than just ending on that note and saying, hey, let's just all forgive the people who have harmed us and head to communion, uh, before we do that, I want to spend a few minutes unpacking and trying to answer this question um, why is God so serious about forgiveness? 
why this level of gravity? Why, why is it that important? And, and I think in order to, to feel the full weight of it, we actually have to go backwards in the scriptures, all the way back to the beginning with the creation of humanity and the human vocation. In the beginning, the scriptures say, verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And throughout the first chapter of the Bible, what we see is God at work creating and ordering the universe, uh, giving meaning and purpose to things. But all of it, it is building up toward the creation of humans. And so we see that the world is actually ordered and purposed in, in a certain way to be fitting for this new creature that is coming onto the scene. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Interesting. All creatures are created by God, but only one creature bears His image, or His likeness. And, and, and there's imagery here um, and wording that's a bit lost on us, uh, translated and in a different culture thousands of years later. But really what this is saying is that the human vocation, the thing that we were designed for, was to be physical embodiments and reflections of God into the visible world. That the invisible God would actually be seen and sensed through his image bearers. And so God placed us in, in this position of ruling and reigning, uh, not as tyrants and, and maniacs, but as humble and accurate reflections of who he is, of his heart posture and his nature into the world. And so he, he delegated some of his rulership and he put us in this place of incredible influence. And what becomes clear by the time you reach the end of chapter 1 of the scriptures is that God is playing a high-stakes game because He's given us free will and incredible influence over creation and then given us the choice to embody and reflect Him or to completely reject that vocation and do the opposite. And then you get to chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and the further you get, the clearer it becomes that humanity has rejected that vocation, that we have, we have chosen to opt out of that, that instead we've chosen not to embody and reflect God, but to do the opposite. And as we do, all of creation, it says, was actually plunged into darkness. And, and it gets so bad that by the time you get a few chapters in, in Noah's time, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only to do evil all of the time. Let your imagination fill in the blanks for a second and what that would have looked like. And, and so what God does is, is he wipes the slate clean and starts over. There's kind of this rebooting of humanity. But the reason uh, that, that he reacts with such gravity to the situation 
is that this represents a, a complete failure of the human vocation. We learn in the scriptures that God is light and in him there is no darkness. But the picture we get of humanity is actually a humanity full of darkness in which there is no light. We've completely missed our purpose. We completely missed our vocation. And, and so God resets everything and, and things are still dark, uh, but a little less dark than they were before. And then as humanity begins to grow, he chooses a nation from within humanity and says, hey, I'm repurposing you. I'm freeing you from slavery. You have a new purpose. It is to embody and reflect me into the physical, visible world. That, that's Israel. And, and you know, if you read through the entire Old Testament, that they're a mixed bag. There are moments of beauty and moments of, of this. And, and as the story develops we see that it's not going super well. And, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. And we're told that he, he's not the nice version of God. Uh, he, he's actually the full and final revelation of God. And, and so in Jesus, uh, now we can really see what God is like. We, we kind of got it before, but now we can truly see what God is like. And, and so Jesus reveals, in a stunning way, he reveals the character of God, which we were designed to embody and reflect. But in living a perfect human life, Jesus does something else. Jesus masters the human vocation by perfectly embodying and reflecting God into the visible, physical universe. J Jesus does what we were unable to do. This was the human purpose. This was what we were designed to do. This is how you were designed to function. In the very beginning, humanity was created to be a whole bunch of Jesuses. I don't know if that's proper English. But that's what we were supposed to look like. Okay? So when we say that our aim as disciples is to be like Jesus... It's not just because we think Jesus was an awesome role model and it's better to be kind than to be grumpy or, or whatever else. It's not that he was a great spiritual leader that we want to emulate. It, it, it's that he mastered the human vocation and this is literally what we were designed to be like. And so now Jesus is calling you and I back into that storyline, back into the human vocation. And, and, and as we do, and as we accept the forgiveness of Jesus over our lives, the scriptures say that we're actually transformed, that you are now the light of the world into the darkness, that you are a new creation. And in fact, the scriptures say that we are Christ's ambassadors. And if you're just reading through the scriptures... You probably skip over that like we do with a lot of the scripture. We're like, well, that's weird. We don't use that language anymore. Why would you say ambassador? But I want you to think about what, what an ambassador is. It, it, an ambassador it is a representative. Uh, it, it, it's a delegate, an image bearer, a, a reflection. Where have we heard that language before? And here's where we come full circle. 
Because the greatest threat to the global church has never been persecution, opposition, or external resistance. Never. The church has thrived under those conditions for thousands of years. The greatest threat to the church has always been people within the church who completely fail to represent God's character to the world. It's the priests who, who abuse the very vulnerable people that he was entrusted with to protect. It, it's the Christian family who ostracizes their wayward child instead of inviting them in and washing their feet. It, it's the blogger who condemns and cuts and criticizes the very people God wants them to forgive and welcome in. These are the worst examples of failure because they're failure of, in the human vocation of the very people who should be representing him best. The closer you are to Jesus, the better you should be able to reflect him into the world. And, and, and that's the crime of the unmerciful servant in today's parable. Notice the order of events. The king forgives the servant of an impossible debt, an insurmountable debt. And the servant receives it, but he refuses to pass it on. He refuses to share or reflect that forgiveness and act in character with the king in forgiving even a small amount of debt. And I think every human being who would read that parable would feel the tension in it. Like, we, we just get that, that that doesn't make sense. And so throughout the scriptures, and in the New Testament in particular, you have some incredibly blunt and perhaps even harsh words from God uh, about those who accept forgiveness and are unwilling to pass it on. We studied these verses a, a couple months ago. This is from the book of Matthew. Jesus says, If you do not forgive others, then God will not forgive you. We don't, we don't want that to be true. But what this actually exposes is the deep and profound connection between loving God and loving others, right? And forgiveness is the same way. Because it turns out that your forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of you and their forgiveness of you and God's forgiveness of them are all wrapped up together. They aren't clean and compartmentalized in the way that we would like them to be. They aren't unrelated or irrelevant to one another. Which means that forgiving others is not in the would-be-nice column. It, it, it's not an extracurricular activity for those, for those of us who want to, to boost our spiritual resume. It, no. Forgiveness is central to the heart of God and therefore, it is central to life with God. And, and so the question becomes, uh, as we close, uh, how do we foster that heart posture? Uh, how do we move from a place of claiming our rights in bitterness and demanding that our offenders face retribution and revenge and instead move into a place of forgiveness? First... Jesus tells us that those who have been forgiven much 
love much. And those who only perceive a small amount of forgiveness love only a little. And all of this that Jesus is talking about, this this is rooted in awareness. It, It actually starts with our awareness of what God has done for us. If the servant in this parable uh, hadn't known about his need for forgiveness or that his debt had been paid um, or, or, the, or that he'd run up a debt or that the king had erased that debt, if all of that had happened between, behind closed doors, we would not expect the servant to be transformed. We, we wouldn't expect him to act any differently. He would, yeah, of course he's going to act in, in cycles of retribution and revenge. That's all he knows. He doesn't know anything else has happened on his behalf. But if you generate within yourself an intense understanding of your sin and God's forgiveness, both of them, not just one, if you only have one, it's going to go sideways. But if you generate within yourself an intense understanding of both of them, then you actually begin to, to have a sense that you're that servant before the king that, that's, run, that's run up an impossible debt. And, and as the king forgives you, he has every right to prosecute and, and exercise his rights against us. But no, in his majesty, he forgives you of everything, of a completely unrepayable debt. And, and, and that changes us. There was a book full of your offenses against God. And, and rather than recount, accounting for those, he, in his radical grace, he burns the book. He says, we're done using the books. We're, we're going to operate on a new basis. And it has nothing to do with these records. So, so they're being burned. That means there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. There's no shame. There's no punishment. He, he refuses to hold that over your head. He says, you are forgiven. You're free. Now go and do likewise. So we understand that the foundation for our forgiveness of others is actually God's rich forgiveness toward us. That's the basis that we operate on. And we've seen uh, the the gravity and importance, the interconnectedness of God's forgiveness in ours. And, and, And the role that that plays within the human vocation, within our purpose as human beings in the God-centered life. But as we close, I want to end with a clear picture of what forgiveness is and what it is that God's asking us to do. Because my guess is that by this point in the teaching, many of us actually have people in mind that we sense God's asking us to forgive. And unless we understand what forgiveness is and what it isn't, then I think we're going to risk doing harm to ourselves and others. So, as we close, just a few thoughts on what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. First, uh, if you're taking notes, forgiveness is not pretending the harm was okay, accepting the harm, forgetting about the harm, or agreeing to be friends. Forgiveness is not any of those things. That's not what God is asking when he asks you to forgive someone. And I'll say a a quick word about each of these. Uh, First, 
sin is real. And sin is real and sin is harmful. Sin against you is, is not okay under any circumstances. The harm that was committed against you was a real harm. And, and, and by forgiving the people who have harmed us, in no way are, are we somehow saying that that darkness wasn't really darkness or that it wasn't a big deal or that it didn't really matter or that everything they did was okay. No, if sin wasn't a big deal, Jesus wouldn't have died for it. It, it is a huge deal. And so forgiveness is not, is not minimizing uh, the sin or justifying the sin or ignoring it. You didn't deserve it. And so we start by calling out sin for the darkness that it is. And then we work toward healing in light of that. And when we work toward healing, that, that might involve a number of different things. It could involve counseling. It could involve a face-to-face -face confrontation and even reconciliation between you and the person who harmed you. It could involve the justice system. Uh, it could involve any of those things and more because it is a big deal and it is not to be minimized, accepted, or forgotten. We have this saying that we throw out all the time, right? We say, forgive and forget. And, and I get the heart posture behind that. I really do. Uh, it means, hey, don't dwell on the offenses that were committed against you. Don't let those things dominate your thinking and, and, and ruin you. And, and don't let them drive you to bitterness. Um, but it, if you put all of those ideas together in, in a misguided concept of what forgiveness is, I, I think you can end up with something like this. You say, okay, my idea of forgiving my abuser means that, that I say to myself, well, it wasn't a big deal. Well, uh, I'll just accept what they did. Well, maybe it was my fault. In fact, I, I should probably just forget that it ever happened and I should probably trust them again because that's what it means to forgive. I've forgotten about it completely. And if it happens again, well then it happens again and I'll forgive them again. 70 times seven. Does that sound like the path that Jesus is asking you to take? Absolutely not. That is not the forgiveness that God is asking you to extend. God is not asking you to trust them again. He, he's, the reality of sin means that in many cases, relationships will be irreversibly shattered. And you're never going to get back to that place again. And, and, and in some cases, to just trust them wholeheartedly could be absolutely foolish in light of what they've done. Look, it, it, if somebody cuts you off on the freeway, forgive and forget, okay? Forget that it ever happens, keep driving doesn't matter it, it if you let your child out to play and the neighbor's dog mortally wounds your child please do not forget that that happens please do not send your child back out again the next day to play with that dog in the name of reconciliation and forgiveness 
that's, that's not what God's asking us to do. Look, the, there are Holocaust survivors who have forgiven the Nazis for what they did. There are 9-11 families who, who have forgiven Al-Qaeda for that event. There are, there are Star Wars fans who have forgiven George Lucas for episodes one through three. Okay? But that doesn't mean that we trust those people again. Does that make sense? We, we don't trust the Nazis with government. And we don't trust Al-Qaeda with bombs. And we praise God that Disney bought the rights to the new Star Wars movies. Okay? God's not asking you to be friends with those people again. Uh, or, or completely trust them as you move forward in the future. And so... Um, one more, one more story that, that I'll share. He's not asking you to trust them. He's not asking you to have a relationship. But he is asking you to forgive them. All of those people are still, yes, we forgive them, even if we can't trust them again. My friend Tom, he was deserted by his biological father. And a stepfather came into the picture who sexually abused him repeatedly throughout his childhood. And when God eventually led Tom as an adult to forgive his fathers, both of them, his biological father was already dead and he wanted nothing to do with his stepfather. He wanted no, I, don't, I have no desire for relationship. And, and, and that's okay. God wasn't asking them to be friends again. Uh, but God was asking Tom to, to start the process of forgiveness. And so for Tom, what that looked like was waking up every morning and saying, God, I forgive them. Even though his heart wasn't there, even when your heart isn't there, you have to learn to say day after day. For Tom, it took years of waking up every morning and saying, God, I forgive them. He was making a choice. Forgiveness is not an emotion. If it was an emotion, then we would never do it because it would never naturally arise in us. Forgiveness is a choice. It's waking up every morning and making that choice. God, I forgive them. God, I forgive them. God, I forgive them. You say that enough, and I promise you, eventually your heart will catch up with the words that you are saying. And, and the people that God's calling you to forgive... It's complicated. They might not be ready for forgiveness. They might not believe that they did anything that needs to be forgiven. It, it, and they might not be asking for it. In some cases, they might be dead. But God is still asking you to forgive them as, as part of following after Jesus and fulfilling the human vocation of reflecting God's character into a dark and broken world. And this is the essence of it. This is what God is calling you to do. First off, forgiveness is taking your hand off the neck of your offender. This is what forgiveness is. It, it's when our thoughts are no longer dominated by anger and bitterness and retribution and the desire for revenge. But you've released them spiritually and emotionally. You've released them from the debt that they owed you. The unforgiving servant in the parable that we just read, 
he's forgiven, and then he goes out, finds the one who owes him a debt, and it says he chokes him with his hands. Forgiveness is, is mentally, emotionally, spiritually putting your hand around someone's neck and saying, this is my right, you owe me. Forgiveness is taking your hand off their, off their neck, saying, I am going to lay down my right to, to exercise retribution and revenge. I'm laying down my right, and, and I'm trusting that to God. God's coming around person to person saying, take your hand off of their neck. This is not how you were intended to live. There's a better way to live. And, and that's what God wants. As you embrace that better way, point number two, it swings the door wide open for redemption and reconciliation. You, you clear the air when you forgive someone. You leave fresh room for God to work in your life and in their life. Our goal in these interactions is to accurately embody the heart of God, uh, to, not perfectly, but to the point that we are no longer a stumbling block between them and God. That the air has been so clear that the path is now open for our offender to come back to God and find forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. And so that's the way of Jesus, is opening up that path. And, and you will be shocked at what Jesus can do with the little bit that you give him. Say, Jesus, I can't do that. He say, just give me a little bit. Just open the door a little bit and see what I can do with it. Forgiveness, to be clear, is not full reconciliation. That's not what God's asking you to do. But forgiveness opens the door for reconciliation to happen. And finally, as we close, forgiveness brings freedom. Most of us know what it's like to run into the unforgiven offender in the grocery store or the high school hallway or the family reunion and, and get that pit in your stomach and, and you just feel sick. And in that moment, the thought of forgiving that person sounds absolutely revolting because we believe in that moment that if we forgive them, then they've won that by forgiving them, we've actually empowered them and said, in, in essence, hey, what you did was okay, I give you permission. We, we feel in that moment as if, we're, as if we're losing power. And that's why we don't want to forgive. We don't want to give up our power, our right to, to assert over someone else. But, it, but in the unusualness of the upside-downness of God's kingdom, it is the exact opposite. Forgiveness, it has been said, is setting someone free and then realizing that person was you. That's how forgiveness works in God's kingdom. We, we, we want to hold on to our grudge as a means of having power over them, we, we don't have power over them. The longer we hold that grudge, the more they have power over us. You want them to stop having power over you? Forgive them. Because Jesus' kingdom 
is an upside down kingdom. And what looks like weakness is actually power. And what looks like bondage is actually freedom. It just doesn't look that way in the moment as you approach that opportunity of forgiveness. And I struggle with this as much as anyone. In fact, of all of the sort of spiritual practices, so to say, in following after Jesus, I actually think that I'm the worst at forgiveness. And um, I, I had this experience. I, I don't even know if I should be preaching on this stuff. Um, so you can cut me off if you want to. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm not good at forgiveness. So if you cut me off on the freeway, no big deal. I'm going to forgive and forget. It's probably just the way you were raised. Okay? Just, I'll let it go. If you steal my parking spot, that's okay. I have legs. I can walk a little further. You're probably having a worse day than I am. But if you truly offend me, if you truly like cut my heart with something, then for me, forgiveness it, it is a bitter struggle. And I don't know, that's probably true of at least someone else in the room, I hope. Uh, but it's difficult. And, and I want to share this experience that I had um, a, a while back where I, I had someone close to me who I felt had offended me in, in a really deep way. Uh, and, and it hurt. It, it like tore me up and, and, and hurt me. And um, so in that moment, as I processed through that in, in the months afterward, uh, part of me wanted forgiveness, right? I'm like following after Jesus. Yeah, I should forgive them. Part of me wanted forgiveness, but more of me um, wanted power and, and condemnation and really the power that comes from condemnation. And, and so... I was wrestling with this. I was like, God, I have to find a way to work through this. I can't just be bitter with them and distance myself from them. And so as this, um, essentially what I was doing in that, that moment, I was saying, God, for me, yes, please, hallelujah, mercy, burn the books. But for that servant over there, let me tell you what they deserve. This is literally what's going on in, in my mind. And, and as this battle it is raging inside of me day in and day out, and I was struggling uh, toward forgiveness, God gave me a vision. And, and in this vision, it was fairly vivid, in this vision, I was like in, in sort of this castle, in this giant cavernous basement with huge columns, huge wide open space, but it was dark. And, and on the far end of the basement, I could see this grand staircase and light spilling down the stairs. And so I was kind of trapped in, in the darkness but I could see the light and I could actually hear the distant sounds of like singing and dancing and, and celebrating and I think that's what they did in ancient castles, okay? So, so that's what's going on up there. I'm stuck and, and I would try to move but my ankle was, was chained and it was actually chained to this giant wooden desk and no matter how much I struggled to move toward the light and to move into that place of, of joy and celebration, I, I couldn't. I, w I was trapped. I was stuck. And I kept struggling and kept struggling. And finally, I, I turned around and looked on the table. And, and on the table, there was this giant book laid open. And, and in the book was a list of their sin against me that I was keeping track of. And, and I sensed the way that you would sense things in a dream. I, I knew in that moment that if I closed the book and stopped counting their sin against them, that the chains would fall off of my ankles and I would be able to move back into the light. 
But, but that's the struggle, isn't it? That I would rather pound my fist on this desk and demand justice for the sin committed against me. That actually becomes more important than me moving into a place of freedom. And God's saying, let it go. And so in that moment, I, I kind of summoned all of the, the strength that I had, which didn't feel like much, and I said, God, I forgive them. I, I close the book. I'm done counting their sin against them. And, and the chains fell off, and I was able to walk back into a place of light and joy and freedom. And that wasn't the end of it. That I, I cannot tell you how many times since then I found myself back in that basement again, pounding my fist on the desk. God, let me tell you what they deserve. But, but every time, I know now, I know now what it takes to be free. So we say, God, with, with the strength that we have, we, we, we forgive them. There, there are far too many of us, some of us in this room, some of us at Hoopfest, that, that labor under the crushing weight of bitter, bitter disappointment and anger and unforgiveness. We labor under this weight because we refuse to extend to another what was so graciously offered to us. But those who have been forgiven much, Jesus says, love much. And, and they are at last fulfilling the human vocation. They are finally free. But Jesus, how many times should I? As many times as it takes. Day after day, year after year, until you move from a place of bondage into the spacious area of freedom that God wants you to be. The scriptures say, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Jesus, as we um, face the reality of the world that we live in, we can, each of us, um, look back into our past and we have so many opportunities to open up the books. We have so many opportunities to claim our rights and to pound on the table and demand justice and punishment. That servant should be thrown in prison. But Jesus, what we see in you it is a whole new way of living. In, in which the records are thrown out and we operate with one another on a different basis. And so Jesus, I pray uh, even now that you would draw to our minds, that you would create in us an intense awareness of the 60 million days worth of labor that we could not possibly repay to you and the record that was burned at the foot of the cross. The scriptures say the list of our transgressions was nailed to the cross along with Jesus. It's, it's done. It's as dead as that body was when they took it down. It means nothing now. And so Jesus, would you, would you teach us how to operate in the new way that doesn't involve books, but actually is the way of freedom and grace and, 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 and mercy? 
So as we as we take a few minutes, Jesus, would you meet us in this place because we we need you in order to live the life that you've called us to live. In your name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, usually at this point in the gathering, we head to the communion table and celebrate communion together. Uh, But this week, before we do that, uh, I just want to create a few minutes for us to pray uh, and for us to forgive. And as God brings to mind maybe the people that we've committed offenses against or the offenses really that we've committed against God, let's turn those into prayers of thanksgiving. Let's, let's generate an understanding of what it is God's done for us. Um, and even more appropriately, as God brings to mind the people that you need to forgive, we just want to create time and space for that to happen. And here's why. We, we want this community, and I'm, I'm sad that a lot of us are out today. We want this community to be a place of freedom. Where we are to- totally operating in the freedom that God has made available to us. And, and so it's for that purpose that we're going to say, yeah, let's, let's do the difficult work. Let's take a few minutes and, and actually pray forgiveness over the people who have create, who have committed very real offenses against us. So I'll pray for us and then we'll take a few minutes and then I'll jump back up uh, and, and open the table for communion.